Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 362nd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that doubles your triggers and bubbles your figures. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I am your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host is Cliff Daigle, at Word of Commander on Twitter. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello there, everybody. As always, I'm looking forward to diving into this week's developments, but first, I want to remind listeners that this show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Please sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on a great Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Cliff, what do we have on our agenda this week? Well, uh, we're going to lead off with talking about the metagame and review. We've got a paper tournament to talk about, as well as uh, the Magic Online uh, Pioneer Challenge. Then we're going to get into uh, the top movers, both online and in paper. There's some uh, some trends that we can identify. Segment three is our cards to watch. We're going to go over picks and sells and a uh, Discord pick. Finally, we're going to talk about uh, whether or not paper play is starting to come back. You know, we've got SEG that just happened. We've got a Pro Tour coming up, and we, we should really get into that a little bit. Alrighty, so we can kick things off here, jumping into our metagame week in review where we are uh, again happy to report that we're taking a look at a big paper tournament alongside uh, an online tournament we've got we just had scg con indianapolis this weekend february 5th uh, or i guess 4th and 5th probably i think i guess the hall was probably open on friday as well and they had a 225 player modern tournament that had 10,000 in prizes up for grabs i think the bigger tournament of the weekend was actually one, Phyrexia All Will Be One Limited. It was a 20k, but this was the second biggest thing they ran on the weekend. Pretty interesting set of lists here in their top eight. Living End took the whole thing down. Blue Red Merc Tide, unsurprisingly, making top eight and in second. And then there was four different Breach decks. We have the Blue Red Aggro Breach, which happened to be running four copies of Third Path Iconoclast. That's a new one to me. Uh, grinding station breach was has been largely absent in the meta online but was back in play here in fourth and fifth place and the fourth place list was running two screlv which is basically the phyrexian giver of runes if you will i guess to protect things like emery uh, or ragavan in, in relevant situations sixth place was a jund list we had amulet titan reporting in in seventh and then there was a teamer breach list in 8th, which was Splashing Green for a combination of Haywire Might in the main alongside Ren and 6. Man, that's a that's a spicy set of cards. What uh, what jumped out? We've seen Hay- Haywire Might. Why is that so hard to say? But this, uh, this aggro breach deck with the third path Iconoclast, it's just 2 mana for the, um, the Monastery Monk, right? I'm not saying that right. What's the Monastery Mentor? Uh, it's, it's 3 mana. Right, Monastery's three. So you, uh, all the decks that love Monastery Mentor uh, but don't want to wait for the third mana, 
you know, you're not really crazy about the prowess is great, but if you can get uh, your win condition online that much sooner, then you're feeling that much more awesome. There's no token anthem or anything like that. This is just, I'm going to overwhelm you with card advantage and counter spells and just make you sad all over the place. Man, this is a low to the ground deck, 19 lands. Yeah, it's also cute that in the eighth place team or breach list, they can, they're running four, even though they're three colors, they're running four Urza Saga. And they can use that to create a combination of Springleaf Drum, either Spellbomb, Mox Amber, or the Haywire Might. They're also leveraging the minuscule amount of green mana in the deck. They just have two Stomping Ground and one Breeding Pool to run a Baseju who endures, which gives them a little bit more reach against other artifact or enchantment heavy decks. The more I see of Saga, I can't decide if Urza Saga is a mistake or brilliance. Like, I thought somebody on the Discord posted Urza Saga was fetching up uh, Amulet of Vigors for Titan. Assorted Amulet. Yeah. What doesn't this stupid card do? And it only gets better over time. It's that classic right. open-ended synergy where every time they, they print a utility one-drop artifact, of which they do plenty, this gets more and more options. And it's it's basically allows you to pre-sideboard to run a bunch of one-of silver bullets in the main, which then frees up slots in the sideboard that gives you a better second and third game and matches. So I don't think there's any doubt that Urza Saga is a 10 of 10 power level card and that it was deliberately pushed to be played in modern. Um, given that it you know, came out of a modern designated set. Right. But so far, because the p- overall power level of the format is so high with all the other things they gave us in Modern Horizons, Modern Horizons 2, and the modern era of design, sneaking a few hyper-powerful cards into standard here and there, nothing's needed to be banned in, in quite some time. I mean, it's ba- the focus of bans for the last few years has largely been to do with companions, which is the real mistake, I think, from most people's perspective. Right. You know, they, they added attacks, and that was still too good. You saw the uh, food list in ninth place right there on the bubble. Uh, I do love every food list that exists. They're all just a thing of beauty. But, yeah, the this this looks like a, a healthy range of stuff, depending on how you feel about people casting Underworld, underworld Breach for, just for value and not for combo. Yeah, the Gruel food list has four Finale of Devastation in the main. That's a card that's gotten up uh, real pricey. Uh, it was pretty cheap at one point, and ever since War of the Spark, since about 18 months out, it's been on the rise, and they are currently going for over $40. So with those War of the Spark boxes that people cracked, if they were ever cracking at a point where they're disappointed, just the finales plus a few of the Planeswalkers probably make up a big chunk of, of the value there. Yeah, Green Sun Zenith being banned, uh, bad, but add an extra mana onto it, and the potential of the 10 mana... And you're okay. I would imagine they will find a reprint slot for Finale in the next two years, so I would get out while the getting is good sometime in the next 6 to 12 months. A Finale reprint Secret Lair sounds right up their alley. One expensive card, four quite mediocre cards. Or just two. You know, they can do three to five cards on those. That's true. They don't have to do a whole cycle. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. So the Pioneer Challenge that went down on Magic Online on the Sunday was also fairly diverse you have white red prowess in first there mono red which was aggro-esque i mean they had a full curve up to four they were running tor torbran on four they had four goblin chain whirler on three 
So I think it's actually fair to call it mono red midrange as opposed to aggro. Black red midrange, the you know the classic contender in this format. And third, a really interesting looking blue red creativity list showed up in fourth place. This was four torrential gear hulk, four fable of the mirror breaker, twenty six instants, four indomitable creativity, and twenty two lands. So the creativities can basically only hit gear hulk, right? Right, that's what it looks like. And so you're you're getting the token from Fable. Yeah. Uh, let's see. You have to destroy your artifacts or creatures. Oh, I see. They they can do it from Prismari Command treasure tokens, from Magma Opus Magma being discarded. Opus. And this is this is a deck with three Sublime Epiphany. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you want a hot hit for your Torrential Gear Hulk. That's what it is. If you, if you want to see a table get flipped by high-strung competitive players at an LGS on a Friday night. <laughs> if they're a little low on sleep, go ahead and sublime epiphany their board and steal a game. So their whole plan is to creativity for one, uh, hopefully hitting... Uh, their goal is to smash that magma opus for value. Well, if they have a, a Gear Hulk in play and they use the epiphany to copy the Gear Hulk as one of the modes, then that Gear Hulk coming into play then lets them cast potentially an epiphany out of the yard. Because mm. you get to Spicy. cast any instant without paying its mana cost. Yeah. You, could, you can also cast a... Is Magma Opus a, an Magma instant? Magma Opus is an instant. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, so that one can also be cast. And Magma Opus does you know fairly silly things when it's cast for free. You're getting four damage divided any way you choose, which is basically a, a fury available in Pioneer. You get two tap two target permanents, so you get rid of their blockers. You make a 4-4 four, four elemental and draw two cards. So that's that's real cute. Uh, setting up the creativity early to mid and then late game being a target for Gear Hulk to bring back out of the yard because all sorts of synergy. Very cute deck. And I think it's the first time I've seen this form of the list. Mono White, a uh, fairly standard deck in the format in fifth. Blue Black Control showing up in six and this one is 25 instants you know your dig through times your fatal pushes power word kill memory deluge and so forth they run a urtai resurrected and a torrential gear hulk of their own they have four shark typhoon and two narset parter of veils a couple of different sweeper effects and yeah they uh and then two shieldred over in the sideboard there mono green in seventh and green red aggro in eighth and I noticed that this aggro deck has four Phoenix Chick in the main, finding a home for that uh, fairly aggressive card from this past year, and four Den of the Bugbear in their land base to keep pushing things through if they get swept. I do like uh, the monocolor creature lands showing up all over the place. That's always uh, a happy, happy thing. I mean, it feels like if they if those lands dodge a reprint, given the level of play they see across multiple formats... Uh, between Pioneer and uh, smattering of play in Modern and plenty of play in EDH, they've got to be solid gainers over time. Uh, they're also going to be ripe for reprints via Secret Layer, so yes. hard to tell where that's going to go. Moving on to Segment 2, Top Paper Movers of the Week. A lot of the same kind of action we've seen lately. Stuff to do with artifacts, with mirrors, with poison hype, people going after surge foils and the like. So we got Mirrodin Besieged from Modern Horizons. This card was down to under a dollar it was like 50 cents at one point it's now at yeah. ten dollars 
has just snuck up there. It never showed up on our list because it was just one of those slow, steady gainers and then took off like a rocket ship. Chief Artificer. This is the 4-5 with affinity for artifact creatures. Artifact creatures you control have menace. And then you get a construct token at the end of your turn. And uh, this gets played in something like 40-45% of those decks. But it's also relevant for the mirror decks that people are looking to build based on Phyrexia All Will Be One. Because one of the modes on the card generates a mirror creature every turn if you choose that mode. And so both the non-foils and foils have been uh, pushing high. One point uh, there, it's it's not just you get one every turn, it's whenever you cast an artifact, you get a mirror token. Ah, right, right, right. Yeah, correct. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, create a 1-1 one, one colorless mirror artifact creature, and then the other mode is at the beginning of your end step, draw a card, then discard a card, so you get a free loot. And then if there are 15 or more artifact cards in your graveyard, target opponent loses the game, uh, which I've never seen go off in EDH, but I hope one day too. Yeah, you know, we all have goals. Artificer class out of Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate... 850 to 11, that's on the back of Artifact Hype as well. Uh, makes your Artifact spells cheaper, so it makes sense in the Urza deck and a bunch of the others. Mirror Superion, this is just regular copies out of New Phyrexia, is 3 to 475. Again, the Mirror Commander is behind that. Muscle Sliver Foil Extended Arts that were available in some of the secret layers last year, going 29 to 45, 55% gains there. Atraxa has been making gains, uh, given all of the new poison tools she has to fool around with in Commander, and the Commander Anthology version, which was, I think, her first reprint, went from 60 to 85 as a result. Malira, Silvok Outcast, out of New Phyrexia, going 8 to 15 on the back of that poison hype for almost 90% gains. And then we have Genesis Chamber Foils out of Battle Bond. This also make mirror, makes mirror tokens, going 5 to 13, 160% gains. We have couple of surge foils, well actually a whole bunch of surge foils, but these are the representatives of the group since we didn't want to go through all 10 surge foils that were uh, targeted <laughs> this week. But inspiring call surge foils 5 to 22 and rampant growth surge foils 1 to 10. Picked those out because they're pretty big uh, staples in EDH. Um, I like the, the known surge foil staples more than I like the 40k specific surge foils, unless those are seeing really high levels of play, is because I think a lot of those cards, as is typical these days, are going to get kind of caught in the wind. People are going to forget a lot of them exist. But when you've got something that people are always reaching for copies of anyway, and you just happen to have a cool version thereof, I think it's a little easier to get the sale made, uh, as it were. It's also good to know that, like, uh, the Surge Foil is a regular frame. Some people prefer that. And you're unlikely to get this exact card and this exact treatment again. I think yeah. Surge Foiling is inevitable in one or two commander sets. Like, this has really been a popular version of it. And uh, the combination of really good cards in the 40k decks and offering the premium versions has really, like, paid off in every sense. So we should expect more of this going forward looking back at 40k a few months out the top 10 cards most played cards in edh rec all of which have 5,000 plus decks reported so far are scepter of eternal glory blood for the blood god exalted flamer of senzich or sinich uh, shadow in the warp which was my pick for likely to be the, the top card that's the enchantment for one red green that the makes the first creature spell you cast each turn cost two less and whenever an opponent casts their first non-creature spell each turn, Shadow in the Warp deals two damage to that player. Having played Cambal for years, this looks very, very good in the, in the colors in question. Biotransference 2 and 2 Black, that enchantment, was the fifth most played. We've got Bloodthirster in sixth, Biophagus in 
7th, Crypto Thrall in 8th, followed by Canop Attack, Spider, and Commissar Severina Rain. So if you're looking at which Surge Foils are likely to hold their position, I would start with those cards. Uh, moving right along, top magic online movers of the week. Most of the motion was in Phyrexia All Will Be One because the cards launched and then whatever people are trying to experiment with is spiking. So I ignored all of that and just looked at the established staples. We had Fury out of Modern Horizons 2 going from 37 tickets to almost 52, so 40% gains there. Court of Cunning out of Commander Legends going 4.69 to 6.9. I'm not sure if that's EDH or Legacy pushing that up. I think the CMR cards are Legacy Legal, if I'm not mistaken. They are. And yeah, because Hullbreacher was banned in Legacy, right? Right. And Grindstone out of Tempest, also a Legacy and Vintage card, 9.7 ticks to 14.63, 50% gains on that card. You know, uh, Magic Online doing fun things, and it's really emblematic of how modern exists. Magic Online exists to feed modern at this point. You know, if you've got uh, Fury going for $50 a shot, and they haven't, like, nudged its numbers in treasure chests or anything moving on over to segment three cards to watch we're going to be talking about a few cards and i've got a sell call this week based on the stats we were looking at above i think i'm going to kick off with that one mirrodin besieged being at ten dollars if you were cracking modern horizons one boxes and throwing this into your bulk time to pull those out and sell if you have foils or even more insanely, you might have a Russian foil if you opened Russian MH1 along with some of the other pro traders. Probably time to go ahead and get those posted, get out while the getting is good. I can't imagine that Mirrodin Besiege is going to be able to hold the recent plateaus very easily. It's in a, a solid amount of decks. I think it's in 25,000 plus overall uh, on EDH Rec, if I'm not mistaken. But the bottom line is that this hype around the Mirror Commander is not something that I believe in very strongly. It's only in 2% of all blue decks since its release four years ago. And if you can get anything near $10 for non-foils and anything near 20 or above for foils, that's easiest money ever. No argument here. It is always a good plan to sell into the hype. And this is clearly quite the hype cycle given that uh, you know, you've got the new commander who everything with the name Mir on it is going crazy right now, and that will not be the case for long. So yeah, you should absolutely be selling into the hype. We can point to all kinds of examples of other things where people should have sold into the hype and then didn't. Yep. Uh, give me your first pick of the week. Uh, my first pick this week is related to what you'd mentioned before about Atraxa going nuts with all the poison fun. Uh, you can get the sealed secret lair with gilded foils. For around the price uh, that Atraxa just got up to, or for around $85 on TCG Player, at least you could earlier today, the individual cards right now are adding up to around $93, and that's just going to keep going up because Atraxa is probably going to be 100 bucks by summer. The extra fun for this, uh, the other two cards, Brea and the Cascade guy whose name escapes me at the moment. Maelstrom Wielder, sorry. Oh, it's okay. That's right, Maelstrom Wanderer is the double Cascade guy. Uh, with haste you get all kinds of fun with bonus secret lair cards this one has a lot of the slivers that are going for a few extra bucks and this will be hard to argue with so i'm telling you that if you uh especially if you want an atraxa just go buy a sealed uh secret lair you're getting like all these extra bonus things for nothing and if you wanted to if you had the the right uh, arrangement of taxes and you're good with the shipping you might be able to uh, get a nice profit if you're picking up at 85 
and I think you'd be able to resell these for 120 or more within the next year. Or split them up to... Or split them up. You know, you'll be able to, uh, if you're buying an 85, you'll be able to sell a Traxa for uh, at least that much, and then you have the rest just for pure profit. I don't think we're going to see another version of a Traxa anytime soon. They've already given us Borderless, the anthology reprint, and a Secret Layer version, so she's probably going to get left alone for at least a year. I'm going to catch shit from the pro trader whose name escapes me that tried to submit this uh, two, three, four weeks ago when it was even a little cheaper to get in on this. But, you know, give them partial credit and hook them up somehow. The sealed secret layer looks solid to me. I don't love it nearly as much at 85 as I did when we were buying them at 50. I think that was the the original retail price. But I hope that people got in uh, somewhere in the interim, either up front or you know, recently as this started to pop off, as the Atraxa momentum gained steam yet again. People, the number of people that have told me over the years that Atraxa is an old commander and there's so many new commanders and nobody's building her anymore. (laughs) And yet she just keeps claiming the top spot of all time. And extremely versatile. I mean, you play her in plus one, you play her in super friends, you play her in proliferate, you play her in poison. Really, where, where, where doesn't she make an appearance? There's just a lot of a lot of mechanics that that fit in, and she also is not a combo specific commander where she needs to be in play for you to get things done necessarily because a lot of your other cards tend to complement and and fill the same role or provide overlap. So she doesn't tend to get focus fired all that often. Sometimes in super friends, if if you're if she's going to push you over the top at end of turn, somebody will deal with it immediately, like throw a vindicate at her or whatever. But a lot of the time, there are problematic combo pieces or commanders that are combo pieces that need to be dealt with ahead of the you know the value incremental value plays like Atraxa, and most people are not scared as good as she is in combat. People are not scared of her, so yeah, she usually gets to sit around and do what she's supposed to do. I don't I don't know who you hang out with, but uh, I don't let people keep their commanders around for very long. <laughs> sure, but a lot of the time you have to choose which one is the most dangerous, and often sure. you know people are tabling commanders who combo. And and Trax is not really a combo piece. She she generates incremental value um, at end of turn. And I think the version of her deck that where she her doing that her uh, end of turn ability is the most dangerous is either poison or the plus one plus one counters builds of creatures where you know you you've got enough compounding effects via hardened scales, doubling season, whatever that it's not your team just doesn't get a little bigger at end of turn. It gets a like. They go plus five, plus five for the whole team or something, and they get some of them get shield counters or whatever. Bottom yeah. line, uh, people actually get to play their Atraxes, so it's, it's not surprising <laughs> to me that most of the versions of this card have been rising. Moving along to my uh, other section of the week, I've called this card twice already. Both calls have been successes. I called Foil Extended Art Underworld Breach uh, back in the summer of 2020 to go 20 to 35 or 40 or something. And those foil extended arts are now pushing $100. I called the extended art version back in October when it started to pick up steam in modern to go 20 to 40, I think it was at the time. And we're basically already there. So now I'm going back and saying, listen, we're seeing week after week after week, breach decks are making top eight. It's happening in paper. It's happening online. 
why would we be holding back on the regular copies? Like the mass cracking of Cal Time is largely behind us. They can reprint this card, but if you look at the product schedule for the rest of the year, there is no easy place to print this other than a secret layer. So it seems very likely to me that Underworld Breach will escape the year without a reprint. If it does come, it'll be a secret layer, but those are planned far enough out. They may not have even had this on their radar because when they were doing planning for 2023, Underworld Breach wasn't a major factor. And it's a it's certainly a, a major EDH card on top of the modern play. It's starting to pick up steam as well uh, as people are experimenting in Pioneer. And I think the combination of all of those leads me to believe that the regular copies, untouched, are probably going to go 20 to 35. And I think even if there was a secret layer, I don't think that that would crater the price so much as stall it out. And it's possible that if that was a very fancy looking piece of art, it would just get priced above the existing regular copies as opposed to competing with them, depending on what else was in the drop. Right. Uh, I think you're right that Underworld Breach is pretty likely to end up in a drop sometime soon. I also can't argue with the idea that the regulars uh, right now are on an upward trajectory just because there is so much value being gained. It's not just the combo piece anymore all the versions are climbing and if we'd gotten in on this uh a few months ago you know it's some of the other time yeah so uh i i have a hard time arguing with you on this i i think 35 might be a lot for just like you're saying it will nearly double in six months i don't think that's out of the the range of possible but i i also think that you've got time for it to avoid a secret layer and probably grow. So this seems like a like a solid pick. I'm I'm with you on this. It's been on on my radar because I've basically sold out of all the copies I bought up front or cracked in call time. And so now I'm looking at do I want to require what what can I acquire and at what seems like a reasonable entry. It's selling 10, 15 copies a day in regular on TCG player, which is very brisk. And we're down to 77 listings. Nobody has for the most part super deep inventory. I do see one vendor at just under $22 with 40 copies, a couple more at fit, you know, bigger vendors at 15, but almost everybody else is onesie twosie. Um, up at 20, 25, there's a 65 copy set and somebody else has 27. So the inventory is not shallow by any means, but it is selling, I think, significantly more quickly than it is able to re-enter the market via buy list and the like. So I will not at all be surprised to see this go, what am I calling, 20 to 35 within six months? Right. Seems possible. I'm with you. Most most of the decks that are running it have to run it as a three or a four of. It's not like a haywire might where it's an uncommon and they run it as a one of or one of main one of sideboard. So the, the momentum is definitely with it. This is not a card you play in just a, a tiny just for fun amount. This is a card that you are planning on doing disgusting things with and rightfully so. All right. So what's your other selection here? Uh, my other pick this week is also related to uh, Poison and Proliferate and Fun. We're about to get all kinds of new legends available to us, and we've got Atraxa climbing the charts again. So if Proliferate's good, I uh, looked for reusable sources of Proliferate, and good old Contagion Clasp jumped out at me having a Time Spiral remastered Old Border Foil. So uh, right now you can get them for around 6 bucks on TCG Player uh, for the Time Spiral remastered Foil, there's no more of those coming unless they do another uh, secret layer or additional set or something. And uh, right now there's only 43 copies on TCG Player, so I'm picking this to double up within the next year as 
different decks that want proliferate and are willing to pay to do it multiple times. It's less about the minus one, minus one counter and more about being able to go four tap proliferate and just get the freebie, get the effect going multiple times every turn, you know, have your shenanigans with some untapping artifacts or whatever. It's been selling briskly. There's a fairly steep ramp. There's a lot less of this inventory because of the nature of the foil old borders in TSR being one every 27 packs. So, you know, with 24 listings left and no major inventory caches, and I think somebody is looking for $25 on them and has five copies. Everybody else is way further back down the ramp. Picking the bees at five, I think you're going to get out at 15 or 20 within the year. That seems very reasonable. I'm glad you agree. Uh, do you want to talk about our uh, Discord pick? Yeah. First, I got to finish buying four copies of it. The no, no. Kuji from our Discord, one of the pro traders, has been looking at a, a class of cards that many of us have bought some of and dabbled with throughout the year. This is the Silver Screen Foils at a Double Feature, which, of course, sold very poorly because the whole thing seemed entirely superfluous to many of the people that had already bought the Innistrad-based products a few months earlier, especially given the fact that the uh, draft format was not custom, yeah, customized in the way that they had represented. So it was a much maligned product, probably the second most hated product of the year after 30th anniversary, although mm, Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate is probably in that conversation as well for 2022. Uh, anyway, Kuji's looking at the dual lands that are in the silver feature, uh, silver screen foil style, and called out Dreamroot Cascade, saying that he had just bought three copies. I went ahead and bought four. That leaves something like, let me just see how many are left in foil. Not a whole heck of a lot. Uh, 22 listings, no major inventory clusters. So a total of maybe 25, 26 copies total and a steep ramp heading up towards $30 plus. A lot of the other lands that are also available like this have already been pushed up um, through a combination of players, player interest, collector interest, and speculator and vendors. And they sell something like two, three, four copies every day or two, which is plenty fine for this level of inventory. And I suspect, as has happened with most of the other relevant cards, that are available in this treatment they are going to be pretty rare very unlikely to be reprinted in this way ever again right um, e- even if they do the reprint set that i'm proposing i don't think this would be high on the priority list and so these are likely to be some in- like curiosities in the collector world and uh show up in edh decks for many moons you know it's a a very popular land land cycle in commander and this is the rarest treatment and whether or not you uh, like having a blue-green... This is the blue-green one, right? Yeah, blue-green. That just has an outline of blue-green to it. Like, you can't tell what colors the stupid land makes unless you're getting in just the right angle. Uh, you know, there's always a market for the rarest version of things. I'm a big fan of most double-feature foils in the long term. And this is a really solid pick. You know, blue-green... Everybody loves playing Simic. Uh, 14 to 25 in the next year seems uh, very, very likely. His official call was 12 to 20, but there's not really many $12 copies left, so I pushed it up a couple of bucks to make it more realistic. It's in 56,000 decks on EDH Rec. The one thing to know about these, though, is they, over the last year, they peaked at around 50 bucks each and have been on a downward slope, and only very recently have they flattened out. But it's interesting because people have been buying them as they get cheaper and cheaper. And 
if they were from a major inventory cache, like if there was tons of this product left to be cracked and it was happening a lot, then you or players had bought tons and tons of it like they did with Modern Horizons 2, then this would be these gaps would be filling back in pretty easily. But they're not. It's it's odd when you see a downward price curve and shrinking inventory, but that's exactly what we're dealing with here. And so you know, there, there's a lot of players that don't even know these exist. There are other players that at one point knew and ha- will for sure have forgotten and will never remember again. But <laughs> at a certain point, you're going to be one of five or ten people that have copies left on the platform, your sales platform of choice. And you're going to sit on it for three, six, nine, twelve, year and a half, two years or whatever. And then you're going to wake up one morning and double or triple your money. Yep. I'm with you. This is a, an excellent reader pick. Good job, Kuji. Alrighty, moving over to segment four, our topic of the week. We wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of the state of paper play. We are in a situation now where a lot of people would say we are quote unquote post pandemic. Uh, I certainly disagree with that wholeheartedly. However, it, there's no debate that there are plenty of people back at their local LGS and out playing with friends on Friday nights, you know, beers and chips at the kitchen table kind of thing. Right. I'm with you on that. I think that uh, it's crazy pedantic of people to be like, no, no, we're not pandemic, we're endemic. And uh, that makes me crazy. But I can't argue with like, I've I've started going to a commander night and I keep uh, the N95 on. And I don't even drink some water because uh, yep. I'm just paranoid as hell. I work, you know, I'm a high school teacher. I'm trying my best to uh, make sure that even though I'm vaccinated to the gills, I'm not you know, taking any unnecessary risks for fun, but there there's a a big event coming to my area in at the end of March, and while I've skipped big events since uh, whenever the heck Reno was, uh, that was early 2019. I'm going to be going to this one. I'm making plans on going and seeing other people, and trying not to uh, freak out at the thought of thousands of nerds in a convention hall all. Heavy breathing as they see cool cards and buy things. And I'm, I'm just feeling like with SCG being back, we're having a pro tour in two weeks. Like, it's not just about the, the, the virus. It's about, like, the mentality of people. And that's clearly changing. Wouldn't you agree? I think it's important for us to go over a bunch of the influences on the ecosystem. Many of which okay. are related to COVID, but there are other you know, ongoing things in play. We have looming, you know, global health crises in the form of pandemic concerns, not just this virus, but other ones too. They're talking about avian flu and stuff now. Um, that would be much more deadly than, than even COVID is, and that's already bad enough. The global environmental catastrophe that is kind of a slow rolling <laughs> boulder that's a, while well, we're all just sitting having a picnic at the bottom of the hill um, as it picks up speed is certainly out there as that a looming shadow but what really matters in the short to midterm is what has happened to the uh, tournament infrastructure in terms of the larger organizations that can run grand prix style events and what has happened in the distribution environment in terms of how wizards is moving product and how they are diversifying to be less reliant on the lgs network and then there are angles in terms of the return of play at the local level 
and the shift in buying and playing behavior in the player base that has been ongoing for the better part of a decade. So let's take each of those in turn. In terms of the big events, I think that it is very likely that Magic is headed to fewer big events that are designed to be more compelling as destinations. So you and I last met up at GP Vegas a few years back. 2018. Right. And those events were hallmarked as really impressive, fun, must-attend events that, you know, had five to 10,000 people on the floor at any given time. I think they had their weekend attendance overall across all events was probably something like 15 or 20,000 people visiting the, the grand city of Las Vegas. And I think that's what is being, the engines are being revved up to reapproach, right? Like we've seen the big event that they held for the 30th anniversary in the fall in Vegas, and there are follow-ups planned for the rest of the year. SCG is back running a tour. It's, you know, a shadow of its former self in many ways, but they're doing a lot of the right things to make the event compelling given the current, you know, player dynamics, like a a larger focus on commander and more things to do in the hall, artists plus lots of vendors, etc. And kind of like pushing those concepts a little further down the road and, and evolving. Um, you were telling me that there's a company that is organizing stuff on the West Coast to fill the gap that Channel Fireball CFB events has left? Yes, they're uh, Laughing Dragon, I believe they are. And uh, they've got Oakland scheduled for uh, March 31st. And the only other event they have a date for is uh, Tacoma in August. But they're trying to do like uh, one in Washington State and one in Oregon right now is what's listed on their site. So they're they're trying you know they're they're they see that seg you know sticks to the east coast right i don't think even at their peak seg was coming out to california you know once a cycle if that and they were really focusing on just like bus tour stops you know the east coast is just more populated that's just how it is if you live on the west coast of the u.s you get used to the fact that everybody cares more about the east coast but uh they do see that uh channel fireball has thrown in the towel, and they are trying to launch something. And I'm hopeful, but yes, that that is what uh, is going on. They're hoping they can get their own tour going. And of course, on the competitive scene, Wizards had hired ex-pro player Huey Jensen, ex of CFB, to come on and manage their competitive play section of the company and so there is some hope there from the competitive players that we're going to see probably a slow motion step-by-step advancement over the next couple of years to i don't think we're going to get back to the golden era of competitive play because the, the game has just pivoted too far away from that but they will get us up off the low point and you know somewhere land hopefully somewhere in the middle i mean part of this definitely um is a result of that shifting play pattern we've discussed a few, you know, several times on cast, really, that Commander is the primary format in Magic at this point. It is the format that lends itself best to social gatherings. It's the format, you know, debatable whether Draft and Cube are, are right alongside it, but it's also the format that encourages collection expansion, which is why Wizards likes it. 
because they've learned that commander players will absorb product at a faster rate than competitive players. Because competitive players competitive players don't want to be forced by metagame shifts to build new decks all the time. The beauty of commander is there's no real meta. Like, you might have a local meta at your kitchen table where your friend has been playing Poison every week for months because they refuse to switch or they can't afford another deck, and then you've got choices to make about whether you want to switch playgroups or expand your, you know, <laughs> go go out to the LGS to get, a, you know, some variety. But you can always loan that person a deck and push them off. Push them off. So there's, there's no real meta. Like, we play every week with the pro traders, some total between the group of 20 or so people that show up here and there. You probably have something like, I'd guess average number of decks owned is like five. I've got 14. And I never had anywhere, like, I never had more than one deck for standard or modern or legacy. But for commander, I have probably 20 grand, 25, 30 grand tied up in those decks. And... It's not a big deal because unlike something like standard or modern where it's very easy for your cards to get pushed out of the format, the key staples in commander are fairly durable. Like there is absolutely an attrition going on given how many commander cards are are printed per year in terms of, you know, is is something like Videlkin Ori even playable anymore? Are three mana mana rocks even playable anymore? But the answer is actually yes. Like it's the CEDH will get more and more and more powerful over time, and the top, you know, the nine or ten level decks out of ten are going to push a bunch of quick cards out of that level. But the reality is, most people don't actually want to play at that level. Most commander players seem to be very satisfied to play in a six to eight range where they either just get into things and their deck is kind of hamstrung by their lack of availability a lack of availability to key cards, or they're a little further down the road and they've got a proper, you know, a properly pulled together name your commander du jour and you know they're capable of comboing off you know d detutoring to go get a sweeper point removaling shielded off the board or doing whatever needs doing and you know i've probably played against 100 150 different decks in the last year so the variety is absolutely there and if something gets oppressive or boring you've got that rule zero to just work it out with your group which is something you could never accomplish in competitive because you're always at the mercy of the meta and there's no negotiating like you can't oh i don't like it that you played a ragavan against me in modern so you can't play that card no one's going to listen to you (laughs) and as a result of all of that commander is on top and so that undermines the necessity of people committing to day-long or weekend-long competitive tournaments because Commander is much more flexible. You can take it up to the cottage and play for a weekend with your buddies or you can meet up on lunch hour and play a single game one-on-one. Like, it's however you want to do it. And that flexibility is something I bet you Wizards wishes they had figured out 20 years sooner because it would have made a huge difference in the expansion of the game. I mean, I remember playing... um when commander was first coming out and uh right before the first batch of uh commander decks came out with um uh who was it call the first round with kalia and everything and it was just like i was playing with a bunch of other folks at uh, my store and we would just like have an idea and say "Ooh, that would be a cool commander and immediately turn around and just like raid our boxes and go build the deck and it was whatever was the silliest thing you could think of 
that was what uh, we were building. I don't think that it gets as much publicity, but I think people are still doing that. And it's awesome that people are still doing that. But, I, I mean, when it comes to like having to, to, to buy cards and what, what Wizards prefers, I, I recognize that in this era of com collector boosters and Wizards being able to, to literally charge more, I find your statement intriguing that Wizards, like, if they can get standard play popular again, and the way you get standard play popular is by enough tournaments being run that people want to play standard, I don't feel like standard is as much of their focus anymore that every set they print is just they're deciding what formats they're feeding. They're always feeding Commander. They're aware of that, and that's why they, they print as much as they do because we are just hungry, hungry hippos when it comes to new cards in Commander. But um, they're deciding, like, how much is this going to affect Pioneer? How much is this going to affect Modern? Because those non-rotating formats, I think you're right that people feel better about investing into those but i'm i would love like more data and to be part of more discussions about what format if wizards had the choice what would be the most popular magic format it's still commander well it's clearly com commander now but like would they make more if standard was the most popular because of the rotating card pool and the need for four ofs they would make the most if draft was even more was even more popular than it ever was and if it had more people addicted to it if people were going to draft halls daily like people go to pachinko parlors in japan and they were you know buying 25 dollars worth of cards a day that's wizards ideal that's not going to happen but that's that's what they would that would make them the most money like, you can only absorb so much money worth of cards into a commander deck in a given day or week without really, like, stretching and buying a bazaar or something. Because you, enjoyment comes from going to the store, looking through some binders, picking out some cards, or buying them online. They come in the mail. You start to you put your your deck on the table. You start sleeving it up and, you know, making your final cuts and whatever. And that part, that additional part of the hobby that is largely absent in competitive play because of the advent of net decking, you know, ages ago, 20 years ago, that, that became the standard where, you know, we, we moved from scry magazine to the internet and then everybody knew what the best deck list was more or less at any given time. And since then there isn't that much creativity by comparison to something like commander where you have infinite amount ways of building a deck, like no two attracts the decks are the same. They're, going to, they're all going to have a Rhystic study. They're all going to have a doubling season and whatever. But they're, you know, 20 or 30 cards will be different in everybody's deck. You know, when the pandemic started and I stopped playing in person completely and we hadn't started playing online yet with the Pro Traders, I, that's when I built a large chunk of those 14 decks. You know, I was had tons of cards sitting around. I was tracking what was going on with Commander. I was speculating on it all the time. And so in, through the process of consuming Commander-based media, I started picking out what Commanders I thought were interesting to me and started building more and more decks because I had all these, you know, my inventory was getting was ballooning and getting bigger and bigger over time. And so I've got decks, you know, worth of cards just sitting around. And I think that that's a major, major win for Wizards is when they can get you to fondle your cardboard more often you're more engaged with the game and you're going to spend more money. The um, There's a couple other like important factors to touch on that have been talked about before, but it all ties together here. One is the shifting 
distribution and retail ecosystem. You've got the pandemic putting a whole bunch of of the least resilient LGS owners out of business early on where like their traffic dropped to zero and they were already on the razor's edge of being right. a mega debt. And, you know, a lot of those businesses last, you know, two, three, four years, and then they just wind up so in debt that they can never get out. And the pandemic put the nail in the coffin for a bunch of them. And so we know for a fact that the the Wizard Play Network, which is not just stores that happen to sell Magic cards, it's stores that are part of their official play network and use their tournament software and whatever, was shrunk. Like we, we lost... I don't know if it was 15, 25, 30% of that network, but it was gone. Now, that doesn't mean that that many less people are playing necessarily, although during the lockdowns, they certainly were. But now that we've kind of rebounded to most people being willing to leave the house and go do things, it just means that in a lot of places, mid to large size cities, it means that the remaining stores get more traffic, more business. They have less competition. In a small town where the only store for 10,000 people or something was that store. And it was also probably the local comic store. Those people just have to drive 20 miles to go somewhere else because they just have zero options. Now, as economies rebound in certain locations, you're going to have new stores pop up. That's how it kind of goes, right? Like you can have one bakery go under and then six months later, somebody tries another bakery on the same street. And a lot of the time, it's not what you're selling. It's how you manage your money. Right. Now, simultaneously, you have Wizards based on influence probably from Hasbro, who got stuck totally behind the eight ball when Toys R Us went under in the US. And everything but Magic, because they never really sold a lot of Magic there, all of their other lines, Marvel, Transformers, Star Wars, all that stuff, one of the biggest chunks of their sales on an annual basis just evaporated in three months. Now, we still have Toys R Us in Canada, but you guys have zero in the US. Yep. And... And there was no major toy competitor left to take out over for that. Now, of course, there's still Target, there's still Walmart, and they were still selling their products. But Toys R Us was a really big deal. You were talking about thousands of big box stores that all disappeared in the same quarter, and Hasbro got destroyed because they had too many eggs in a, in a single basket. And as a result, you have a couple of years further on, Wizards refocusing away from the LGS a little bit, and they haven't abandoned them. Like all the claims that they are like screwing the LGS and everything. It's not exactly true. Like they are absolutely competing against their own retailers in some ways, but lots of companies do that and their retail networks still thrive if their businesses are run well. Like if you go to a Mox boarding house, you're <laughs> it doesn't look like they're starving, you know what I'm saying? And Wizards pushing a lot of product, sealed product through Amazon at very very competitive prices that most LGSs will have trouble beating is a factor. It it impacts, it pulls some percentage of sales away from local purchase. Now, a lot of people are impulse purchasers. That's kind of why Magic can survive a recession fairly well, um, because it's like cigarettes, it's like movies. It's when when you're in a re- when you're in a recession, you you buy a used car instead of a new car. You go on a road trip instead of flying your family to Europe, but you don't stop buying cigarettes you don't stop buying booze you don't stop buying a chocolate bar and you don't stop buying three booster packs on the way home from work like those are resilient things like when people need small pleasures this kind of gambling based card game is perfect and so they've they've always done well in recessions and probably will do so again 
but it still does pull some amount of sales away from the local network. The other thing that's going on is Wizards has a program internationally where certain vendors, bigger vendors that can move a lot of volume are getting advantageous price deals that are very close to distributor pricing. And, you know, for people that don't fully get how this all works, Wizards gets somebody else to manufacture the cards for them and then ships them via a logistics company to a distributor. There are several major distributors in the U.S. and others overseas. In Europe, there's basically one gigantic one right now. I think it's Blackstar. Uh, and then Asia has a whole different scene. The products then gets resold from those distributors to their brick-and-mortar-only accounts. Usually, if you're an online seller, you can't get access to a distributor. You need to um, have a retail location somewhere as part of their rules. And then you also have to be willing to take on a bunch of products that may not sell well, just so you can get the ones that will sell well. So if you want Magic and Pokemon or the new One Piece game or Lorcana later this summer, you're going to have to agree to buy a bunch of garbage from your distributor, which is a whole <laughs> different, garbage. which is a whole different. Oh, it's tr- it, but it's true. Like I've heard the story from, we, we work with partners all over the world and you always hear the same story. The distributors force them to buy product that sucks. Right. Because In otherwise... Because otherwise it would be the distributors that got stuck with all the bad product and then distributors would have a, be in danger of going under. And if they've got to choose between screwing the retailers or screwing themselves, they're always going to choose the retailers. And so as per usual in trickle-down economics, you've got the the additional costs that are added to the economy just get pushed out, out, out towards the consumer. And we've seen, you know, we see plenty of that. So yes, Amazon's a problem, but this other program they're running where really big vendors have better cheaper sealed product than your average, you know, single LGS in, in a, you know, Orange County, California or whatever, that means that they are not going to be able to compete against those bigger vendors, especially if those vendors have an a online sales focus. So like something like a Star City Games or a Channel Fireball when it used to be a retailer or a Card Kingdom, they're going to tend to have a middle of the road price point because they have high... Uh, visibility online so they don't have to be the cheapest they can they have enough traffic coming through their site that they can just be a a good price instead of the best price but there's a bunch of major retailers online that sell through various platforms tcg ebay card market in the in europe and so forth where they they take the smallest of margins and they're basically just volume operators which is similar to how a lot of you know low-end grocery stores run where they have you know 1.5 to 3 percent margins or something and you know they're they have to do massive volume to make that work for them but that also puts pressure on the smaller retailers so you've got a shrinking network that in theory gives their surviving lgs network access to more business because magic has still been growing up to this point now there may be may or may not be a contraction that will be reported for 2023 but up until this point the last five years has been all growth so the survivors are in a better position but they're being more heavily competed with directly by wizards on Amazon. They've got this other program that's potentially problematic, and you have the secret layers becoming this kind of ever-present drain on players' spend resources so that wizards is selling cards directly to players. They're not even like, they're cutting out all the middlemen, and well, other than scale fast, who fulfills for them, and selling direct. And, you know, every once in a while, they throw it a bone to the LGSs and they send them some some secret layer specific things that only they are allowed to sell. But for the most part, 95% of the time, Wizards are selling directly. And, you know, that's certainly a change as well. Right. So the the idea is that we're not going to get back to how it was. And 
uh, anybody who's expecting that is probably in for a rude awakening if they haven't already had it. So what kind of signs would we be looking for? Like, we're not going to see a bunch of local stores opening. I'm remembering, you know, uh, at MTG Price, we used to do like round by round coverage of pro tours. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did minute by minute coverage approach tours at one point. Right, because that's all it took to move a card was like one yeah. good round. Um, you know, I remember uh, the Pro Tour Hour of Devastation where Hazard jumped up um, from like five to twenty five dollars over a weekend, and by the end of the weekend, you couldn't buy them online for very much, but you sure could resell them that coming week because everybody wanted to have the hot standard tech. And I think it takes like the first step is going to have to be more like high profile tournaments, right? And that can create interest that local game stores can then pull people in on. It's going to be really curious to me once they finally get Arena to have Pioneer, then you've got Magic Online for Modern and and Legacy and Vintage, but those don't really count. You've got Arena for... Uh, it's much easier to draft and everything on Arena, uh, although it's much easier to go infinite on Magic Online uh, for in terms of drafting. But, like, do they need uh, an LGS model at all, I guess is what I'm asking. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think... People that were saying, like, when Amazon, Amazon sales started that Wizards was going to stop, like, selling through the LGS network or the LGSs were all going to go out of business. As per usual, the sky is falling crowd is wrong. They're almost always wrong. The, right. It's always more nuanced than that. And the, the reality is that the decisions Wizards ha, has made are profit-seeking. They are selfish. They put pressure on the LGS to be that much more efficient and that much better managed so that they can be one of the survivors. But there's so all of the best run LGSs in North America are basically restaurants and taverns that happen to support board games and card games. (laughs) Like that's, that's true here in Toronto, Stormcrow Manor, same thing as Mox Boarding House, same thing as Snakes and Lattes here in the city. Like all the biggest operators that, that are in the gaming scene and, end up running, you know, multiple locations in multiple cities, they all have the same model. They're, they're restaurants that charge extra for gaming. And that's a great model. And and mm-hmm. LGS has failed to get in on that for many, many years, in part because in certain situations, it's hard to get a liquor license or it's hard to get a food license. You got a whole bunch of additional overhead in terms of preparing for food inspections and, and the like if you go down that route. And a lot of these LGSs are run by like a dude and his buddies or a dude and his wife. You know what I'm saying, and and so you're. It's tough to go from single person small business to ten or twenty or thirty employees. Those are really hard plateaus to uh, evolve into, and many businesses never get there. But right. I'm con- confident that we have that the future of the LGS network is secured, especially given like how slow the pace on virtual reality <laughs> has been in terms of people dabbling with it, but it not dominating this decade as I thought it might. A decade ago things could change in a hurry we get to quantum computing and and things get a lot better really fast but you know for now it looks like tabletop gaming is in a is still in a renaissance right that has been interrupted by covid but is kind of rolling forward and that's you know everything from for warhammer to magic to 
this Disney product coming out this summer that wouldn't exist if they didn't think that there there was a market for that, uh, Lorcana. And so I suspect that we are just in a position where that Saturday morning coverage has pivoted to YouTube TikTok coverage, right? It's right. it's the command zone instead of the SCG tour on a Saturday morning that can move a card. Like I was just watching their their uh, video from a few weeks back that was like the year in review, review for 2022. And there was a segment in there that was the best new cards of the year. And I'm sure that moved some cardboard. Right. And we're also slowly but steadily moving towards a more stats driven era where most of the major operators in the MTG finance scene and most of the major vendors are either running their own private statistical modeling or are you know making working on projects to be made publicly available that will help anybody have a, a pretty good sense of whether a card is headed up or down whether inventory is headed up or down what a re, what the risk of reprint in certain scenarios will likely result in um, in terms of you know underplayed card printed once getting a reprint as a rare in a master set what does that mean probably means it's going to drop 60 or 80 percent maybe even more what does it mean if you reprint ragavan every three years not a whole lot it, it, dockside ragavan that kind of thing ristic study that you, you know if you if you're judicious about when you reprint them then they're going to drop some rebound but each rebound will be a little bit weaker to the point where you can eventually, after enough reprints, make a card medium cheap, ten to twenty dollars forever, if you just keep printing it at a at a steady pace. One thing, um, I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. Well, I, I'm just about to go, with, you know, into a summary mode where it's kind of like, so given all of that chatter, where are we at on paper, as well as can be expected? Um, the one thing that I think I would cap with is something I've said before on cast, which is that. It's really weird that Wizards has not done more with Spell Table. Because they don't yeah. even really need to do that much with it. It just needs a, a couple of tweaks to be really user-friendly. And then they should be promoting the hell out of that. Because they could partner with they can partner with a equipment provider, like a Logitech. They need a, a really good uh camera and a, and a good light setup. And like if you if you could get that to be like the official Wizards brand, you'd make a big pile of money. Doesn't need to be official Wizards branding. It needs to be co-branded with a Logitech, and then you bundle it with. You know how we have Commander decks for every release, but we have we still have the annual Commander decks usually associated with the spring set, where we get five decks instead of two or three. Right. When they put it with five, there should be a premium version where you get one of those decks, uh, a random one maybe, with the Logitech camera and light and that's bundled in a larger thing that is fulfilled by a fulfillment partner. They've already got that through scale fast. So they just have to get the custom packaging put together and probably have Logitech uh, spearhead that. And they could probably move tens of thousands of units a year that way, which I think both parties would be satisfied with. And the plan there is to onboard commander players, which we know are high ARPU players that are likely to get pulled in and then if you have a good matchmaking system and player to player uh rankings where people like can tick some boxes after a game and say yeah plays a lot of sweepers plays a lot of tutors combos off a lot very friendly creative whatever and then they have kind of a, a soft matchmaking system where people can self-identify and get cues 
as to kind of where their power level of decks tends to be perceived by their play partners, you you can drive a lot of paper business that way and tie it into Arena. There's no reason there shouldn't be ads for Arena inside Spelltable, which there is not. If there was a matchmaking system like you're describing, like you would just lose a bunch of us into the Matrix, man. You want to be careful handing out ideas like this for free. My God. Um, it sells physical product that is then used in a virtual way. And it solves right. a lot of the problem of getting Commander on a, Arena, which I think they would love to have if they could snap their fingers, but they know it's expensive and they are the ch- Hasbro is so cheap and foolish <laughs> when it comes to digital that EDH on arena could be three to five years off. Oh man. I don't think you, uh, I think that's a conversation for another day, like putting commander online. I agree with you that they are uh, crazy cheap as a, as an outlook. Speaking of cheap, uh, one thing, my last thought about like whether paper play is back before the pandemic they they just started uh getting command zone out there right that had been a relatively recent innovation in these spaces i think that we won't be far off from our first events that are you pay to get in and that'll be a very like you know you get ten dollars a day pass or twenty dollars for the whole weekend or whatever and that feels like the way to get places to at least want to run an event because right now if you are the organizer of the event you are having to charge so much on the command zone you're having to like you can't get the same uh bonuses to artists or cosplayers and things you have to make sure that you're charging enough on all of your side events like i have well, and, and the number one reason that Channel Fireball and Star City ran those big tournament scenes for so long was because they wanted to be the corner Place you go table. For the singles, yeah. They wanted to buy cards. Like they they wanted to run those tournaments so nobody else was charging them twenty thousand a weekend to, to have a table. <laughs> that too. But like I, I think that stores that aren't charging um uh what's its face? They're not charging table fees are not going to be around much longer. I think that almost every place is going to be charging for just coming in and playing. It's tough because small town Indiana or whatever, you're going to have trouble convincing people to do that because they'll just go to the local diner or something. Um, but the reality is that this, if you're running a gaming store in that environment, you are very unlikely to be one of the long-term survivors. Yeah. The, Reality is that this game does best in an upper middle class neighborhood surrounded by people with time and money. And yep. that is that is not someone who is living hand to mouth that has to work two jobs, that has four kids, like none of none of those things are conducive to to having magic players support your business. You want some quotient of whales walking in on a Friday night after they've been paid and dropping $600 on three CBs of Phyrexia all will be one. You want a guy to come in and get a case of Modern Horizons 2 draft boosters to go crack with his buddies at the cottage. You want to take an order list from some guy that's $3,000 worth of singles that he's going to come back and pick up in half an hour and he needs the list pulled so he can go play commander with his buddies. If, you, if you're not a store in that position, and I have traveled through the U.S. enough to have seen many one-horse towns with 
tiny gaming shops. Used to always live in this, one myself. It's always the same scene. You walk in, there's some like 12 and 12 to 14 year olds fooling around at a table. The owner is often involved drafting with them. They probably yep. have six people instead of the required eight. Like <laughs> those are not the businesses that dictate the future of magic. The, I, I think the reality is that because of the rule that social media has taken away from the weekend uh, event coverage, events are going to be more destination oriented, relevant specific to the people that are attending and not as relevant to the rest of us, which makes them less visible. We will have a continued lack of coverage overall compared to what the golden era was like. However, that doesn't mean we actually have less people playing. I just think it means that less of the play is visible. More of it is getting played at kitchen tables. And instead of it being kitchen table, kitchen table 60, an increasing percentage is commander. And, and I think that's fine. I mean, so people think for so many different reasons from 30th anniversary edition to, you know, the pace of releases last year claimed that magic is collapsing. We are so, so, so far from that. I had my best January of sales ever this month. Like, it was almost more than my, might actually have been more than my official salary worth of, uh, <laughs> worth of fun. Like, and not even just salary. I think it was more than funds from all sources last month. And the rest of the year, I bet you, is going to be very similar because unlike a lot of the vendor models where they are, they are holding deep inventory of degrading assets, because they have, if you have a store that tries to stock everything for standard, pioneer, modern, some legacy and collector stuff, some premium cards and a bunch of sealed product, and you're trying to shotgun and they reprint, they take the reprint schedule from X to 2X or 3X and you throw the secret layers into the mix as a, and the list, then a lot of your inventory is going to degrade. Either because it is no longer relevant from all the new cards being printed and all the new products, or, or a new version, yeah. Because it's the sixth, seventh, eighth version of the card. Yeah. But models like mine that are have almost no overhead, primarily online sales, a little bit of local, but mostly online, and a strong focus on premium slash collector, and, and a willingness to hold, because the vendor model, the buy list model wants to flip within like 90 days. Right. And ideally, they just want to flip the same day. You want to flip my, it that weekend. You don't even want to bring it home. My model is six months to 24 months. So I can I can afford to wait for a foil underworld breach to go nowhere for 12 months and then triple and do very well. And that's what we're seeing with, uh, with stuff like the secret layers, like holding the secret layers sealed, um, I think is really a, a mid-range plan where you can like yeah i have a closet full of secret layers and b big businesses don't really want to do that it's tangential to the the discussion about paper magic but the the <laughs> issue with secret layers and the 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 breadth of product in general is the uh mind share issue i've said this for years the more magic cards that exist the more sealed product that exists the more of that will be forgotten and because most of the major platforms are very bad at highlighting and promoting, like TCG player could do so much more in terms of tracking 
cards that are seeing the most new play this month and putting that front and center on their homepage and pushing Magic players towards it so that they remember to buy important cards. You would think, you know what? That's a really good point. Like, um, Star City and Channel Fireball, uh, when they were, you know, hosting events, they were probably moving a lot of cardboard. You would think that the place doing the most selling would have the most interest in encouraging uh, events to happen. The, the major platforms, if they were vendor-run, tended to generate the affiliate link-style sales traffic within their own sites by having tournament coverage or deck design discussion coverage you know, read Duke's new thoughts on Jund in the in you know the current season or whatever, and everybody would provide the hyperlink from the card name to the sales page. That makes right. sense. But on TCG Player, people are not going there first and foremost for content. They're going there first and for, foremost for purchasing. And so there's always this internal struggle on those platforms to understand the value of brand, they understand the value of follow on action like a call to action that follows a different activity and so even on tcg player they tend to bury most of their content in a way that is easily ignored whereas they should have major content pieces that will drive sales tagged in on their sales pages which they do almost none of and their homepage should be completely redesigned to focus on major shifts in the availability of new cards and products to ensure that they sell at an even higher pace. Because currently, almost every major platform, whether it's eBay or Card Market or TCG Player, relies on the player to self-educate off of their platform and know what they're looking for when they arrive. They do not do a good job of providing a browsable experience that is enjoyable. And there are, you see a lot more of it done well in the fashion world so there is, a, there is a lot to be gained, <laughs> but it's funny because eBay has spent the 20, you know, 20 years resting on its laurels and has been, has done very little to innovate. There have been some key things, like you can scan a, a card and it, they can pretty much build the listing for you automatically now. But in the grand scheme of things, they are, have done very little because they've been sitting on top of the pyramid and have never really been challenged in any major way. And so... They've bought TCG Player. That does not give bode well, in my opinion, in terms of what is likely to happen in evolving that platform. Time will tell. But I think that they can, you know, if people are worried about lack of momentum, there are definitely things that can be done. I mean, the Netflix show needs to get launched. The success right. of Critical Roles, two seasons of Vox Machina, and their five-year deal with Amazon that just got announced to build more shows should be upsetting people at Hasbro because they could have been doing that the entire time. They just proved that <laughs> there was tens of millions of dollars to be made on the back of D&D properties, which probably means that's also true of Magic. And it's really weird that Hasbro has forgotten this lesson because the only reason they ever made it out of the 80s was that they made Transformers cartoons and... G.I. Joe cartoons. G.I. Joe and, and, and other... Everything. Well, I mean... Different, different companies own different properties at the time, so they, it's not like they were they, they didn't have the Star Wars license at the time. That was a Kenner uh, product in the 80s. But the bottom line is Hasbro, you know, My Little Pony, Glow Worm, Transformers, all these things sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of toys in the 80s. 
and they've just forgotten that that you need to commit to pay Hollywood level price like West Coast price tags to get these projects done. The problem is Hasbro is a East Coast pay scale and that has always been an issue. Anytime they go try to do an entertainment project or a digital product, they never want to be holding the bag financing the thing and so they don't get to keep the profits. With stuff like Transform the Transformers movies that made billion literally billions of dollars, they got a big chunk, but they didn't get as much as they would have if they'd taken more of the risk. Right. They just licensed a, a lot of the Yeah. The thing instead out. of pr- instead of producing it themselves. And and that's you know suboptimal. Bottom line, I think Magic is healthy. I think Paper Play is doing just fine because Commander has taken on a lot of what used to be the competitive action. You're seeing a lot of Magic pros start to pivot into CEDH, like Matt Sperling's been making a lot of noise on Twitter lately um, related to CEDH, and I think those are smart moves by the people involved. I think that that is going to... That intersection of the Commander rule set and card set and the competitive-minded people will continue to evolve. Uh, We certainly have, you know a subgroup of our commander players in the pro trader discord that are looking to play more competitively and are happy to combo off on turn three. And all of that, I think bodes well, I think if they want to sculpt the perfect 2023, I would dial back the product mix a little bit. I would smooth it out a little bit. Like part of what made last fall feel so extreme was because, uh, infinity and 40 K were bumped from their spring slots to a fall slot. And right. so you just had like product piling up on itself. I don't think we're going to see that this year because they should Let's have most of those. They should have most of those issues worked out. It looks given that we're getting a 60 day window on the secret layer. It seems to suggest that there is no major, like it's going to be at least 60 days till they, they do another major drop and probably more like 90. Cause if it, there might be like a black history month drop or something, but I don't, that'll be a singular drop, but it doesn't look like there will be, it wouldn't make sense that they would launch another super drop with the window on this one right. still open. So it looks like the pace might be taken from six weeks out to maybe every two months, every three months on the super drops. And if that proves true, I think that's going to be a pretty comfortable pace for everybody. Let's hope from your lips to their ears. Alrighty, brother, where can people find you online? People can find me online on Twitter at word of commander, as well as my articles every Friday on mtgprice.com. And you folks can find me on Twitter at mtgcritic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year, $7.99 if you, per month if you don't need access to group buys. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering's singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Don't forget to use promo code FINANCE5, that's FINANCE with the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. James, we ranged far afield today, but I like it. I like hearing the detailed thoughts about what we can do, and uh, I can't wait for what next week holds. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you, Magic. Thank you, Magic players. And we will see all of you next week for another episode of MTG Fast Finance. (laughs) 